Hello, welcome to the first uh, episode of uh, One Team, One Car, One Driver in English. And also to, today with us, we have our first international guest, Matt Bishop. Matt has a wonderful career, both in journalism and in motorsport. And we are privileged to have Matt with us today uh, to talk about his life uh, in the sport and in journalism. And also something that is very dear to him, a cause that he embraces, embraces on uh, everything he does, which is the LGBTQ plus uh, cause. Matt, thank you for joining us. Uh, and uh, thank you for giving us this privilege. It's a, it's a, a privilege to me. Thank you. Uh, to, today with me, I also have Antonio, Vasco, and Marcelo. You will all know them from previous episodes. Uh, Matt, just to give our listeners and viewers a short background, you started writing about cars for Car Magazine in 1993, where you became a features editor. You then joined in 1996 F1 Racing, first as editor and then becoming editor-in-chief. In 2007, Ron Dennis called you to become the group head of communications and PR at McLaren. 2018, you took a sabbatical to write the book, The Boy Made the Difference. And then you joined the W Series in the leadership team. And now, just a couple months ago, you joined the Cognizant Aston Martin F1 team as chief communications officer. And in between all this, you also co-authored the biography of Emerson Fittipaldi, A Racer's Soul, Emo, A Racer's Soul. Uh, I have to tell you that on Friday, when uh, you confirmed that you would be joining us for this discussion, I worked with a bunch of journalists covering energy markets, and I told them that you were coming on board, and I, I sent them your short bio, and they all told me, damn, this guy has the dream career. <laughs> How did the, the, the passion for cars and motorsport came to, to you? Was it something that uh, you grew up with or it was something that happened naturally later in, in life? It was something that descended upon me when I was a boy. Uh, my mother and father had no interest in cars and no interest in racing. Well, my father quite liked cars, road cars, but um, no interest in motor racing at all. And you have to remember that Formula One, I, mean, I'm, I'm, I was born in 1962. So when I was a child in the 60s, and even up till the early 70s, although we look back on those times of motor racing with Jim Clark and Jackie Stewart and uh, Emerson Fittipaldi, indeed, as you mentioned, we look back on those times um, and regard them as a glorious era. In fact, in those days, in this country, the United Kingdom, it wasn't on television. It was not reported in the newspapers. When I say it wasn't on television, the British Grand Prix was on television and sometimes Monaco and sometimes Monza, but none of the others. As I say, it wasn't reported in the newspapers and it was very much a minority sport. Uh, it's hard to imagine that now, but it was the case. James Hunt changed all that in, in the United Kingdom in 1976. But prior to that, even though we had glorious champions such as Jim Clark and Jackie Stewart, They hadn't grabbed the public Im imagination in the way that, of course, James Hunt did with his extraordinary battle with Nicky Lauda for the World Championship in 1976. Mm -hmm. So where did I learn 
about Formula One? I honestly can't remember. I think I have a memory in the very early 70s, perhaps 71 or 72, of going into a newsagent to pick up my football magazine because I was always a, a big uh, Formula uh, football fan when I was a kid. Which team? Um, uh, Arsenal, Arsenal supporter. So there you are. And wow. uh, <laughs> you have to forgive me. We, we have to support um, <laughs> our, our local teams. I was brought up in that area of, of London. Yeah, tough and times now, but uh, glorious past. Uh, yes, yes, yes. Anyway, it was um, around 1971-72, and I went into the newsagent to pick up my copy of Shoot, which was a kid's mm -hmm. comic about football, and I saw this magazine lying on the counter, Autosport. I never heard of it, and I looked on the cover, and I saw this car, which I now know was Jackie Stewart's Tyrrell, this beautiful blue car, quite extraordinary, not like the cars that I had already developed a fondness for that I saw on the road, typical British cars of the time, Austin Cambridge, Morris Oxford, uh, Vauxhall Victor, and so on, mm -hmm. but this extraordinary car. And I asked the newsagent if I could swap my subscription from Shoot to Autosport, and he said yes, and the rest is history. Very good. The writing side, though, it's pretty much in your DNA, right? Because your great-great-parents were writers and authors. Your grandmother was an author. Your mother was an author. And now you are an author as well. So that came naturally to you. You just were born writing, right? Yes. I, I, my, my family environment had nothing to do with motor racing, but it had everything to do with writing and literature. I was brought up to read uh, and to admire writers, and I did. And as you say, my mother and my grandmother and various other members of my family going back were novelists, writers, or journalists, or publishers, and various other people. So I was completely brought up to that world. And I can remember, you know, often uh, when I was a kid, not only my mother and my grandmother, but also my aunt and my uncle and others would be talking about literature, English literature, or American literature, or Russian literature, or French literature, uh, while I was sitting reading autosport on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like uh, something that uh, we all know the feeling. Um, guys, you feel free to ask any questions at any time. Uh, I'll just continue. Uh, I'm a big fan of F1 racing. I've been reading it since I was a kid, and uh, I still have a subscription to GP Racing. Uh, and you worked there for probably the best years of uh, F1 racing in terms of readership and sales. And as editor-in-chief, how did you approach this project? Uh, what did you feel that an F1 publication should be about? And how did you bring it to life the way you did? Well, when I arrived, I'd already worked at Car Magazine, uh, writing about road cars and doing road tests, but also doing a, a little bit of Formula One and motorsport uh, journalism as well. So I had been to uh, a few Grand Prix for a few years, maybe three years, going to a handful of Grand Prix uh, per year. So it wasn't strange to me. And of course, I had been a fan since I was a boy. So when I was headhunted by Haymarket, as it was then, mm -hmm. to go and become the editor 
and then as you say later the editor-in-chief of um, f1 racing i immediately jumped at it i was thrilled but i i also thought that there was an opportunity here because we had the great murray walker who sadly has just passed away as you mm -hmm. know who who was a legend of tv commentary and he did bring the sport alive on television but with the greatest respect to the reporters who had reported on Formula One in magazines prior to that, some of whom are absolutely brilliant writers and now good friends, people like Nigel Roebuck and Peter Windsor. But nonetheless, they had been reports. Uh, they had been reports rather than a lifestyle evocation of the sport. Mm -hmm. And I thought that in some ways, the background story was perhaps the more interesting one and the technical analysis and the political analysis and the intrigue and the skullduggery was just as interesting as what happened on track. Moreover, what happened on track, everyone had already seen. Yeah. That wasn't the case in the 70s because it wasn't on the television, but by the 90s it was. So if you were a Formula One fan, did you really want a monthly magazine that said, Michael Schumacher was on pole, he led from the start, Giancarlo Fisichella drove well to second, Damon Hill's engine expired. You'd seen that already. Yeah. So I thought, in fact, there was a, a, an opportunity to create a lifestyle magazine that told the story behind the story. In fact, in many ways, as the current Netflix Drive to Survive series now does, and with great success, I think most of us would uh, uh, contend, particularly in terms of interesting um, fans who are not avid, who are not avid, who do not, who are not suffering from the obsession that I suffer from, where I, most of my waking thoughts for the past 50 years have been on the subject of Formula One. So not for those people so much, but not to alienate them, but also to be of interest to fans and indeed enlist fans in the enthusiasm. And I think that worked because it did become the world's best-selling Formula One magazine. And when I started, it was on sale in one country, in one language, UK, English. And by the time 11 years I left to join McLaren, uh, headhunted by Ron Dennis, it was on sale in 34 uh, languages in 110 countries. So we must have done something right. And it was that approach, I think, which was taking great writers, people like, as I said, um, Nigel Roebuck and Peter Windsor, also the late Alan Henry, who is no longer with us, but was a great friend. Morris Hamilton, still there, not at F1 Racing so much, but in other places. And then young writers, people like Tom Clarkson, uh, who, of course, is now um, ever present in the Formula One scene, but was 21 when I uh, 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 started with him. In is there, just to, for our listeners, Tom Clarkson does the Beyond the Grid podcast uh, yeah. that I think all of you <laughs> hear as well. Yes, Sorry for he, he, does. he does indeed. But he, start, he was just 21 uh, when I started at F1 Racing and a, a young lad, and uh, but talented. And we had also the great Darren Heath, who was and is still a great Formula One photographer. But he brought well, them all, did a lot of 
innovative photography, which was very important because we wanted us, we wanted um, F1 racing not only to read well, but to look good. Well, Darren, I'm glad you brought him up because he kindly allowed us to use his photos in our website. Uh, he granted us rights for that. So a public thank you to, to Darren as well for that. He was very kind. Um, in 2007, you crossed the, the border. You went to the other side. Uh, yes. And uh, <laughs> you went into a team that at the time was the biggest team in the paddock, uh, coming out of the worst scandal in the sports history. Uh, with a lot of wounds to heal and uh, a lot of communication management to, to be handled. How much pressure did you feel stepping into that job? Yes, uh, I think it was my first comms job. Don't forget. I had worked, I was an experienced journalist and editor and I knew the politics of the sport very well. And that's why Ron hired me. I mean, there, there would have been other communications professionals with greater experience and in fact he already had uh, press officers of high quality um, but he didn't have a strategic comms director uh, who would be able to manage I dare I was almost going to say compete but let's say a mixture between manage and compete the situation as was being spun uh, and I, I think he wouldn't uh, object to the words spun there by Richard Woods, who was working for the FIA um, very closely with Max Mosley during what still probably remains the most antagonistic period of Formula One. And Ron Dennis and Max Mosley, of course, not friends. <laughs> and the whole Spygate scandal had become uh, a, a, a kind of spin off of that animosity. I'm not saying that the behavior of all the participants was perfect, but I'm saying that there was an element of a spin-off from it. Yeah. Anyway, I arrived, I was hired as a result of that, too late to help fix it, really, and the $100 million fine was applied and paid. It's ordinary, really, that it could be paid, but it was carefully um, chosen by Max Mosley, I think, so that it would very much hurt McLaren, but not cripple McLaren yeah and that is what happened so when I arrived there was an atmosphere of defensive pessimism we had been thrown out of the constructors championship the year before having scored more points than the team that did therefore eventually win it Ferrari and constructors championships do not arrive easily yeah and to lose one in that way was very painful the, if I think back, I just think back that uh, everyone was nervous. Everyone was very nervous, but also very relieved that the team had survived. So that was the atmosphere into which I arrived and decided to try, first of all, before telling any very proactive promotional stories, damage limitation, set the team square obviously working with ron dennis and martin whitmarsh and others to make sure that we then had a playing field that would give media fans and of course sponsors the confidence to take our narrative forward without always talking about spygate and gradually mm -hmm. that did occur 
when it occurs. And, and, and Matthew, what what did you leverage at that time to to change uh, the McLaren's image uh, on the outcome of, of, of Spygate? Well, I'll give you one example. So Luca Colliani was then as now um, senior uh, comms operated senior comms operative at Ferrari. And he had been very active um, during the Spygate uh, saga, um, obviously telling the story from Ferrari's point of view, as you would expect, as is his job. <clears throat> but he and I knew each other, knew each other for a long time already. And I invited him to McLaren. Now, I remember when he arrived, he came from Maranello, he flew to uh, Heathrow and he we sent a car for him and he arrived at the McLaren Technology Center and I remember he was nervous he was I think astonished that he'd been invited given the battle that had waged the year before but also of course very impressed by the McLaren Technology Center which was only four years old at that point and is a very impressive building I call it a cathedral to speed a cathedral to motor racing, really. And he, but a very modern cathedral. And he arrived, and I welcomed him, and I took him to see Ron Dennis in Ron Dennis's office. And he was, I think, quite overawed. Um, not by surprise, just by surprise that he was being treated very well. And that evening, we had arranged that Luca and I would take to dinner perhaps 12 of the most senior British motor racing journalists, which we did. We took them to an Italian restaurant. I chose an Italian restaurant <laughs> in London. Nice touch. And we ate and drank very, very well. And at the end of the day, at the end of the meal, I, I had said to Luca before, I think it would be a nice gesture if we pay half and half, half paid by Ferrari, <laughs> half paid by McLaren. And he said, okay, yes, yes. So we did. And at the end, when the bill came, we put our two credit cards down, McLaren credit card, Ferrari credit card. And the journalists were fascinated and they stared at it. <laughs> and then they arranged it carefully, obviously, so that you couldn't see the credit card numbers for Number, security yeah. reasons. But they laid it on the thing. They all took photographs of our two credit cards paying for their meal. Now, that, that was obviously a symbol and a gesture. But I think it also marked the beginning of a comms and PR rapprochement between the two teams. It took a long time to thaw because, of course, the 2008 season was also acrimonious yeah. between Ferrari and McLaren. Um, but gradually, uh, things thawed. Um, and there were other things we did. You know, we, 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 I'll give you another one example. If you remember the um, McLaren communications, no, the McLaren Brand Center, which is the big um, black forbidding building in the paddock. Um, it used to have, in up to 2007, it used to have a message on the door saying VIPs and invited guests only, with only underlined. 
So we changed that. I changed that for one word. It just said, welcome. And a lot of these little things showed a difference of nuance, that there was a sea change going on within McLaren. Um, we also didn't seek to deny um, previous wrongdoing. What's the point? We had just paid a $100 million fine, but we did seek to express the determination to move on from it. Did, did Ron Dennis give you a cut blanche in terms of uh, strategy and and um, actions that you could do to to overcome this uh, this event? I wouldn't say carte blanche, but he certainly gave me um, space in which to uh, inaugurate some of these things. Uh, somebody like Ron Dennis doesn't want surprises. That kind of person yeah. doesn't want surprises. They want to make sure they are aware of things. But uh, he also was on the back foot. He had had a terrible time. His anus horribilis, as the Queen of England once called it. She, she wasn't talking about Spygate. She was talking about <laughs> her own troubles. But it applied to Ron Dennis as well. A terrible, horrible year. And he was also... Um, it had affected his private life. You know, his 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 marriage had come to an end. Uh, Ron was not in a great place. And I think he hired, he, he relied on his senior lieutenants, and I had become one, um, to help him through this very difficult stage. And, and we did. And we did. And actually, I think that's why, I mean, Ron Dennis is a remarkable person, um, maddening at times, but also a genius. And... I think those who worked closely with him during that period, uh, there was a, a great deal of loyalty going in both directions. We we we, we usually say uh, usually say in the, in the in our podcast that Ron Dennis it's it's the only team principal that was mad enough to to have Sen and Prost as teammates. That no other team principal would ever do this uh, again, and. He, he repeated well, it when it when he put it Alonso and and, and Hamilton on on the well, same. It, team. I probably didn't know that he was repeating it, but that's what yeah. Ended I, up I, I'd say that, and he abruptly ended it in the end of, of seven. But uh, um, do you see this characteristic of Ron Dennis as 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 as, uh, as madness or as passion for uh, and will willingness to to win at all costs? I call him a crazy genius. So. <laughs> In a way, that is a mixture of madness and passion. But, you know, some people underestimate Ron, despite the fact, despite the fact that he is uh, so successful. Um, of course, he's a crazy genius. Of course, he could drive you mad. Of course, he could be difficult. Um, but also, he has, as team principal, won more races than any other person in the history of our sport, including Enzo Ferrari, including Colin Chapman, including Toto Wolf, although that is gaining. Um, yeah. And am I right? He's still ahead of Toto Wolf. I think he is still ahead. I think he is, yeah. Uh, I can double check. Yeah. I think he I, is. I can, I can assure you that in our hearts he is. <laughs> <laughs> well, all credit to Toto Wolf. A fantastic um, yeah, uh, work yeah. in recent years, of course. But, um, no, I would say that um, Ron Dennis was unshakably confident and unshakably 
ambitious. And that is the reason why he would not have balked at the idea of having Ayrton Senna and Alain Prost in the same team. If you think about it, when I arrived at McLaren in, on the 1st of January 2008, he was already a very successful man. He was already a very rich man. He was already in his 60s. You might have thought that he would perhaps slow down or wind down at about that time. But no. What did he do? He set up McLaren Automotive. He got involved in a huge amount of spending. At one time in the setup of automotive, I think we were spending a million pounds a week with no income coming in at that stage, no cars being sold at that stage, but mm -hmm. building the factory and building, uh, developing the car and so on and so forth. A serial entrepreneur of extraordinary confidence. And where did the confidence come from? Because he was born to humble origins in the town of Woking. Uh, and his, he, he, he didn't do particularly wonderfully well at school. And he was a mechanic. But somehow, out of that came the most successful team principal in the history of Formula One. He still is. You've done the I Google just, yeah. just now. Yes. yes. <laughs> I think by a small margin to Toto, because the numbers I saw were from 2019. In 2019, Toto had 79 wins, and Ron Dennis had 138, and Frank Williams, Sir Frank Williams, 114. But I think over 2019, 2020, Toto shortened the distance, but didn't cover it. Uh, for sure. Matt, one, but one, one final question. One, just one Sorry. final question on McLaren. Why did you leave McLaren? Were you growing tired of it? Yeah. Look, when, when Zach Brown arrived, um, you know, I worked very well with him to start with. I knew him already. But um, without going into details, I suppose in some ways I was seen perhaps as a Ron man, a Ron Dennis man. And I wasn't the only one. There were others who were seen yeah. in that way. And eventually, I think it became obvious that Zach wanted his own people. Um, and so an elegant solution was arrived upon. And in fact, obviously, the person who is now um, communications director at, uh, at McLaren is Tim Bampton, who had worked at uh, with with Zach Brown for 10 years or more prior so they were friends and um I liked him uh, I think Tim's a good guy a very capable comms uh, person and I think it was probably right that they should continue to work together and there would have been no point me trying to cling on so once it became after about 6 months time working with Zach it became clear that perhaps there was uh, a desire to do something like that, we came to an elegant solution. An elegant solution means plenty of money. So um, I wasn't particularly upset, although although it was a change because I was so very, very embedded in my um, in both my reputation but also my psyche as part of McLaren. I had completely involved in that team and everything it did for ten years. But then what happened is I, I was 54 then, I'm 58 now. So I was 54 then and I suddenly had leisure. I suddenly had leisure um, 
thrust upon me in a way that I now regard as a wonderful gift, a wonderful gift. And I had eight months before I started work at W Series. And in those eight months, I wrote a novel, which I would never have probably had the mental bandwidth to be able to do. Uh, and I wouldn't be able to do again now. But perhaps I will do in my retirement whenever that comes. Just one last question for me on Formula One, and then Antonio and Marcelo can also ask uh, anything related to this topic if they want to. In 2008, McLaren and you bounced back from the Anus Horribilis with, on top of everything, a British F1 World Championship driver, uh, World Champion driver, and Lewis Hamilton, which was your first World Champion as well uh, that you worked with, and for sure that has a special place in your heart. Um, and you praise Lewis a lot. Uh, for not only what he does on track, but also how he conducts himself outside of the track, embracing the, all different causes. But before we talk about that, my question to you, you have worked with Lewis Hamilton, Jensen Button, Fernando Alonso, and now you're starting to work with Sebastian Vettel. Are world champions different than the rest of the drivers in terms of how you work with them, how you approach with them, and how their mental uh, strength comes through in terms of the communications uh, approach that you you as a communications officer want them to have and how they see themselves and the perception they have of themselves for being world champion and the short answer is yes they are different and i think that is because if you are super successful in your sport and yes i've worked with four world champions three of whom were world champions, one of whom is the most sex successful um, driver in the history of Formula One. So I have a reasonably um, good vantage point, perhaps, from which to comment on it. I think they are flesh and blood, the same as all of us, the same as every other driver. But there is... Uh, um, I keep using Latin expressions. I'm sorry. I don't know why I do. Well, I it's okay. Like... We're Portuguese. We're I, used I to know. It. <laughs> I sound, but when English people talk, uh, use Latin expressions, it, it sounds like Boris Johnson, and I'm not very keen on that. <laughs> but anyway, I think they see themselves as primus inter pares, first among yeah. equals. And that's quite a carefully chosen phrase because they are equals. They are all racing drivers. They are all great drivers. One of my pet hates is when people say that a certain Formula 1 driver is rubbish or not good. They're all good. They're all good. Yeah. Anyone who gets that far in Formula 1 to Formula 1 is a great driver. It's like saying that a, a player who plays for England or Portugal in football is not a good player. He is a good player or he wouldn't have got that far. Yeah. So they are first among equals and they are equals. But the reason they're first they, they, particularly if they're not only world champions, but fantastic drivers, they have a certain swagger, we call it in English, a certain confidence, uh, a certain um, savoir-faire, and they're not particularly bothered by what other people think. I mean, I, I don't mean that they're arrogant, but I mean that they have mm. their own opinion and yep. they put their own opinion forward. And probably, I mean, I'll keep Sebastian Vettel out of it for the moment in this comparison. You may want because to... Because he just started as well. 
because I've only known I'm not, I've known him for many years, but I've only worked with him for yeah. two and a half months, so it would be unfair. And I would think Jensen Button, I will slightly put to one side with respect to Jensen, who is a fine driver and a great guy, but not a multiple champion and not perhaps with the complete ruthlessness that you see in the likes of Lewis Hamilton and Fernando Alonso. Uh, ruthlessness can sometimes be a negative word, but I don't mean it in that way. I mean just mm -hmm. colossal self-belief, colossal confidence, absolute certitude that they are the best. No doubt about it. I know they both can't be the best, but they both think they are the best. Um, yeah, but that's why we have podcasts like ours. <laughs> yes, yes. You, you argue about this point endlessly. I personally would say, I mean, I've always said in the history of the sport, it, through, through my life, I always said that there were three truly great drivers that you couldn't separate across different eras. And one was Juan Manuel Fangio, the other was Jim Clark, and the other was Ayrton Senna. And I thought those three sat at the top with all the other many great drivers, mm -hmm. you know, Michael Schumacher, Alan Prost, Jackie Stewart, Sterling Moss, sitting just a little bit behind. By the way, whenever you say something like this, you get killed on Twitter. <laughs> so I'll make sure to use it as a teaser. You can, you can. So <laughs> that's why I always name check the other people, the Schumachers and the Prosts, so that people think that I'm not uh, being negative about them, because I'm not. But I now think that Hamilton has joined those three. I think now there is a top four. And I think with Hamilton's achievements, not only the number of wins and championships, but also the fact that he has won in every year of his career, every single one, yeah. including, which is very important, 2009, when the car was not good and he won twice mm -hmm. nonetheless. And the driver in the other car, Heike Kovalainen, who was not a bad driver, who was a good driver, was made to look as if he was driving a completely different car. And that car was really not good, particularly at the beginning. But Lewis is a force of nature and he would not accept that it could not win races. And for that reason, it did win races in his hands. And I think Fernando is cut from the same cloth and it'll be interesting to see how well he does with Alpine. I expect him to do pretty well. I know he's nearly 40, I think, but He's yeah. still fit and he's still super um, uh, competent, talented, of course. And also, there's another thing I would say about that, yeah. is that particularly Fernando, and I think Lewis now, but I knew Lewis when he was younger. So I think Fernando now, and probably Lewis now as well, you know, they say what they want to say in the media. They don't care uh, what a comms director is advising them. I don't mean they're Uh, yeah, yeah. dismissive of him or her I just mean to say they would say thank you very much thank you I hear that advice I shall not take it I shall say what I wish to say yeah and that would be shown in for instance when McLaren was struggling with Honda engines and that was not a marriage made in heaven and I was the comms director at the time and Fernando was one of the drivers And I would say, okay, we're going to get a lot of difficult questions about um, the relationship, a lot of different, different difficult questions about the performance and unreliability of the power unit. Uh, we mustn't blame Honda. We must, you know, we win together and we lose together. 
They're a very competent organization. They make more engines than any other company in, in the world, which they do. So they will get there. So we just have to support them for now. See, no problem, no problem. And then <laughs> when the interview comes, GP2 engine, deck chairs, all these other comments, which of course were cleverly using the media to make his point. And by the same token, Lewis has decided that he's going to embrace Black Lives Matter and uh, all the other um, off-track activism that he does. And I don't know whether um, Mercedes-Benz is delighted about it or I don't know whether they just accept it because they have no option. But the point is they have no option. Yeah. He was going to do that, whatever they said. And he will do it, whatever they said. And if you remember, he had uh, a T-shirt that he wore on the podium and the FIA said, you cannot wear that T-shirt again on the podium. Okay, he'll wear it elsewhere. He will get his message across. Uh, and actually, I think of all the drivers I've worked with, you know, Lewis Hamilton has to be, of the ones I've worked with, I would have to say Lewis Hamilton is the greatest on track and off track. Can you tell us more about, uh, if you can, the work he does off track? We 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 were very critical when we brought when he brought the the racism issue onto F one, not because of the racism the racism cause or the topic that he was raising, because we all embraced that, but because he brought it into the Grand Prix weekend. And you know our perception at the time, and we talked about it in the podcast, is that you know when you want when you go to a Grand Prix weekend, you don't want to be thinking about other things. That the point is, you want to focus on that uh, period of time, short period of time, every second week, where you can enjoy pure racing between the best drivers in the world with the, supposedly the best cars in the world. And that we always felt that you know Lewis Hamilton being who he is, and having the platform he has, he should be doing this in between races, where he can draw a lot of attention to the causes that are important that, that we should all support and be engaged with. But being Portuguese, we, and I think this goes for all of us, we are never exposed to what he does off track. But I read a, an op-ed that you signed for the race, where you mentioned some of the things that he does that I didn't even know, and I read a lot about Formula 1. Uh, can you share with us some of that walking the wall, the talk uh, that Louis does out, off track that uh, we are not aware uh, outside of the UK more mainly? Well, well, I have not worked with him since 2012, but I'll tackle your first part of your question first because, yes, a lot of people say um, politics has no place in sport, and why does he have to do that? That is an opinion. That is a defensible yeah. opinion. If you have that opinion, there's no point uh, me or anybody trying to um, persuade anyone otherwise, you are entitled to that opinion, as I am entitled to this opinion, which is as follows, which is that sport is part of life and politics is part of life. And I don't think that it is reasonable, in my view, to insist that they be separate when actually they are not separate. They exist in the same cosmos and the same people are interested in both subjects. And why, I'll put it another way, why uniquely should sportsmen and sportswomen be prevented or barred from speaking about politics? Why should they be prevented? I sometimes have this on Twitter. I mean, I don't tweet about politics very much, 
but I used to a little bit when the 2016 referendum took place in the UK because I was mm. so disappointed with the result. I mean, I'm not just saying this because you're Portuguese, but I love Europe <laughs> and I wanted to be remain part of the European Union. And um, uh, and I, I think Brexit will, will probably turn out to be a complete disaster. But anyway, uh, as predicted and as very predictable. But there you are. See, I'm getting in politics now. And somebody will be angry about it. But sometimes if, if, if I have made those points on Twitter, which I don't anymore, but I did at the time back in 2016, 2017, um, people said, why don't you just stick to Formula One? We like your tweets about Formula One. Um, why do you t tweet about politics? And I used to reply, you literally follow me. You literally follow me. Yeah, that is what and it's you a do. choice. You press the word follow. You press the word follow on Twitter. You literally follow me. If you do not want to hear what I say, unfollow me. I don't mean that in <laughs> a negative way, but it's logical. To criticize somebody you're following on Twitter for what they are saying is like walking up to someone's front door, ringing the doorbell, saying to them, good morning, what are you thinking about? And then when they tell you what they're thinking about, you say, I don't like that. Please stop thinking. <laughs> that is the exact equivalent of complaining about somebody's tweets, unless the tweets are very offensive or insulting to you. Yeah, yeah, of course. Something else. So by the same token, I think it's up to Lewis. And Lewis has decided he's won this many races. He's won this many championships. And he now wants to use his platform about to further and promote causes that he believes passionately in. Good for him, in my view. Good for him. And if you don't like it, just watch the races and don't watch the rest. You can avoid it if you wish. Yeah, no, our question, our, our issue was not so much about... Uh, first of all, I believe in freedom of expression. You should be able to say what you think at any point, anywhere. We have more issues in the fact that he chose to start it uh, with uh, the taking the knee at the beginning of the Grand Prix or wearing the T-shirt. And I personally felt that man, this is Lewis Hamilton. I mean, if anyone has a huge platform available to him on a daily basis, every second of the day, it's Lewis Hamilton. He could have done this outside of the Grand Prix weekend and build a huge following for the cause and bringing people together that feel the same and support. And that was what bothered us in the beginning because I personally felt that he was disrupting the Grand Prix itself, not because of the message that he was portraying or conveying, but the, the method he chose to do so, which of course it's highly successful because it's so disruptive that we are talking now about it uh, almost a year later. Uh, and that was the issue because otherwise I think anyone should be free to to talk about uh, the causes that they believe in. And anyone with a platform has that responsibility as well, in my opinion. Because if you have a platform that either you build small or large, you should use that platform to convey the principles and causes that you believe in and that you believe are positive for society at large. And that's how you would like to see the world being. And then people are free, as you say, to follow or unfollow as they see fit. Obviously, I, I tend not to unfollow people that I disagree with because I want to know what they're thinking, try to understand it from their point of view. And this becomes completely offensive. Uh, but that 
that I think it's a personal attitude that each one has to decide with which direction they go. Uh, and I, I really would love to see the media uh, showcasing what Lewis is doing off track and the causes that is important. For instance, he came out now against the Vatican. Not many people did. Uh, I don't know if you're all aware of what I'm talking about, but uh, the Vatican issued a, a statement uh, saying that uh, they will not embrace gay marriage. Uh, and Lewis was one of the few high-profile people that came out against the Vatican and condemning that statement, uh, which I completely agree with Lewis because besides being anachronic, it doesn't make sense in today's world. It's also dumb from a religion that preaches love to be exclusive in what love they're talking about. Uh, and I think that the principle of love does not apply to what sexual preference you have. It applies to how you embrace life and others around you and how you relate to them. And that's what should matter the most. But apparently the Vatican is not interested in that. But that is a nice segue to the next part of the discussion. You arrived to Formula One as the group head of communications and PR of McLaren. And no, 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 no. I arrived in, in Formula One as a journalist years before that. Yeah, yeah, no, but I mean uh, on the other side of the fence. Okay. Uh, there is a perception that the, the paddock is a predominantly white male heterosexual environment. And you are openly gay. Was that an obstacle when you joined the, the, the McLaren? Did you find any resistance because of that fact? Not at all. Um, but I will take you back to the journalism, sure. because that's more relevant, really, because I arrived in Formula One um, as a journalist, uh, as an openly gay man. And uh, as a journalist, you have perhaps less protection and less um, uh, perceived seniority than if you become a, a director of Formula One team. So I think perhaps there was a little bit of homophobia, a little bit of um, gossip about me at that time, because I was apparently the only one. Of course, I wasn't really the only one, but I was the only one who had been open about it uh, uh, at the time. There are 4,000 people travelled to every Grand Prix, or there were before COVID-19. And of course, it's uh, totally unlikely that there would only be one who was uh, who was not heterosexual. So, but there was in those days only one who was uh, prepared to say so. Yeah. I'm talking about the mid nineties. And uh, I think m much of the, the, the negativity was whispered behind my back. Um, there was just one driver whom I won't reveal the name, um, completely unconnected uh, to the sport now who used to uh, make open homophobic remarks. He used to call me a fat faggot. Um, uh, uh, your, your listeners and viewers will know that that's a pejorative term. I couldn't yeah, object yeah. to any part of it. I was a bit overweight and I was gay. So fat faggot was uh, uh, factually accurate, but also um, uh, very discourteous and, uh, and unkind. Yeah. Then when I moved on, uh, to after you know 10 or 11 or 12 years to McLaren mm -hmm. by that time people knew me people yeah. knew me so I arrived at McLaren everybody already knew I was gay when I got there um, and some people said for instance that Ron Dennis would find that difficult well he didn't find it difficult well, he, he hired me 
Pardon? Yeah, he hired you, so. He hired me, knowing I was gay. And he was very friendly. He was friendly to um, uh, to me about it. He he talked about it without embarrassment, uh, despite the fact that he's, you know, he is, of course, as you say, a white um, heterosexual male of a certain age. No, he was fine. And then when I met a man whom I eventually married, he said, I hear you've met someone whom you're going to marry. Congratulations, and so on. So uh, uh, I found that, um, that 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 all very good. And many Formula One people have come to our parties. My husband and my, and I, Angel, and I. Um, he's from Philippines. Angel, if you want to pronounce it in uh, in the Spanish way, but we say Angel in English. And um, yeah, lots of Formula One people uh, have have come to our parties and indeed to our wedding. Um, so, uh, yes, I think by the time I got to McLaren, there was no issue. Having said that, having said that, I think there is an issue even now. And this is why I, I'm an ambassador for Racing Pride, which was inaugurated with Stonewall, which is a LGBTQ plus charity, uh, as you must know. And that was inaugurated in 2019. And that's because young karting drivers, male or female, um, who might be LGBTQ, were encountering negativity or were deciding not to enter the sport or proceed with the sport because of the negativity they were encountering. And I thought that needed to change. And so I was part of a small group who set up Racing Pride with Stonewall. But also, which I focus on a little bit more because of the fact that I work not in karting, of course, but in Formula One, with the fact that it seems to be all right now for uh, a communications or PR or media person to be gay, LGBTQ+, plus, yeah. or for a journalist, or for a marketing person, or commercial, or catering, or events. But engineering and mechanics, no, not so much. And there are still mechanics who work for teams now who have been working for them for 20 years who didn't dare to come out and reveal themselves back then and because they have been secret or closeted as we say for so long don't dare to come out now some of them and it's up to everybody when they want to come out or if they want to come out you shouldn't be pushed out it's up to you yeah and i talk to them sometimes in in confidence they have sometimes reached out to me and said, could you help me? I, I have, I wish I could be out. I wish I could come open to my fellow mechanics. And I try to persuade them and they have had some success. You can, just because they, you have not, you've been working with them for 20 years and you never told them. First of all, they may already know, they may secretly know, or they may suspect. And second, you know, this is not the 1950s. This is 2020, 2021. And if you go to your friend, if you work for Williams or Red Bull or Mercedes or any of the other teams, and you say, listen, mate, I know I've been working with you for 20 years and I should have told you before, but for various reasons I didn't, but I'm now going to take a big jump and tell you, yes, I'm gay. He will probably say, Thank goodness you told me, mate. I think I probably already knew. Yeah. And we'll be welcoming of it. 
In general, homophobia in the Western world is quite a rare thing now. 70 years ago, it was very common. 30 years ago, even. But not so much now. And do you think that is, the, is there a role that we as fans of the sport can play to make people comfortable uh, coming out if they want to come out or just that we don't see any issue with who they are, right? Because that's the main point here is that people should be comfortable with who they are, not feel afraid that how other people will react to that because it shouldn't even be a topic. No, exactly. And, um, and that's really one of the reasons I'm doing this interview with you. And I'm grateful for you having asked me to do it. So you are already doing something for fans because you have chosen to invite me. And you could have just asked me about McLaren and Aston Martin and W Series and Lewis and Jensen and Fernando and Sebastian. But now we're talking about this subject, which is your choice to bring up. And I appreciate. So you are already doing something for fans. I think also, uh, yeah, just, just, just a general acceptance that, um, that, there, that, that um, there is, as you say, no reason to be negative about anyone. I, I don't know if there is a gay Formula One driver at the moment. There, perhaps there isn't. I, I don't know. I genuinely mm. don't know. Perhaps there isn't. Um, but we know there have been, in the past, very few that were open. But we do know um, of three, and um, which is Mike Beutler, who was a gay man, which is Nisha Cabral, who was a bisexual man, although he came out at the age of 75, um, and Lella Lombardi, who was a lesbian. Um, all of them no longer with us, um, and none of them hugely successful. But anyway, they, 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 they were pioneers, trailblazers in their way. And... All I would say is that if there were a gay Formula One driver, and I'm not suggesting that any of the current ones are, yeah, yeah. but if there were in the future, in one year or two years or three years or four years, he would become an absolute superstar if he came out and said, yes, I am gay. Yes, I race for McLaren. Yes, I race for Williams. Yes, I race for Ferrari. And I am gay. And I think the sponsors would love it. The fans would welcome it, and I think he would become one of the biggest superstars in the world. Yeah. yeah. Well, why do you that, think? Why do you sorry. think the um, uh, the drivers, the mechanics, the engineers, they don't feel comfortable to uh, to, to take that step? I, I think perhaps because I mean, I, perhaps because I'm talking about uh, mechanics who have been in the sport for a long time already. I think it's difficult to come out if you haven't come out for 20 years, because in a sense, in coming out, you are telling your colleagues and fellow workers, you know, uh, who perhaps thought they were very close to you, that there was something important that you withheld from them for so long. I think the easiest way to come out is to walk straight in and come out, mm -hmm. arrive in the new company. And because coming out is not something you do once. Coming out is something you do again and again and again and again and again. You know, I've had to come out at Aston Martin. Yes, some people already knew, but not everybody. So people say, are you married? Yes, I am. My husband is Angel. Um, we have been married for so many years. That's how I answer. If you come out like that, from the first moment, it's easier. If you 
tiptoe around the subject and then come out after some years, it's harder. Oh, you never told me. I assume yeah. it's harder, I think, if you do that. So that's what I'm talking about. I'm not mm -hmm. blaming mechanics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, I, that I think that that is a, a, a situation that uh, somehow has become a, a factor. I was asking because, uh, you know, uh, to try to understand this also, if there is a, a different uh, uh, atmosphere uh, that uh, you live in a garage comparing, like, uh, with the people that work in the communications and marketing, etc. Well, perhaps it's very male, it's very heterosexual. Um, for that matter, it's very white. But, um, but no, I, I, I have, you know, come out to mechanics myself, mechanics at McLaren and um, at W Series, of course, the mechanics are men at W Series, uh, and indeed, uh, Aston Martin, um, and indeed, at grad, you know, things like the Autosport Awards that has uh, 1,200 uh, motorsport people attending, and Angel, my husband, has attended, and there has never been uh, any problem. I think people people are now very welcoming. And I think the more one can be open and, I mean, some drivers have actually said to me, some drivers have thanked me. I think Damon Hill and Martin Brundle, who of course would, were racing when I started. And they were, they hadn't really come across that many uh, gay people. And now they're both, I would regard them both as friends. And they're both very, very, friendly to me and indeed to Angel and I think they have said as much that uh, perhaps getting to know me and not only meeting a gay man but meeting a gay man that they could become friendly with and could talk about motor racing with um, and other things but including motor racing uh, was an eye-opener in a positive way and then we fast forward to some of the younger drivers I've worked with um, let's say at McLaren, Kevin Magnussen and Stoffel van Dorn and so on, who just completely blind to it. You know, it's just not an issue, not an issue. In fact, Kevin Magnussen came to our wedding. Um, yeah, go, go ahead. Um, do you think that, you know, I um, agree with you when you mentioned that the politics is a part of uh, F1 and is impossible to separate from our life anyway. Um, you think that the teams uh, and the F1 in general should be more active uh, in um, uh, in uh, using their platforms to to talk about the this uh, the things. And I'm not talking about and LGBTQ plus, but also, for example, the, the racism. If do you think they they should be more active, and also if the the teams uh, actually have the the freedom to do it if they want so. So my my answer is no. My answer is my whole point is it's entirely up to the individual. So mm -hmm. you asked me earlier if Lewis Hamilton should not. Be active in politics and i said no i think he should be able to so my answer mm -hmm. is that the teams should be able to if they wish to i'm not telling them they should i think it's entirely their choice and if they wish to they can and in fact formula one is doing that you know they do have the we race as one campaign mm -hmm. and they will mm -hmm. continue to do that but i'm not saying they must 
it's not up to yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, I understand that. But but do you think they have the um, uh, they have the the freedom to do it if they they want so? If there's any kind yes. of uh, pressure, yeah. I do think they do. Do you see one of the, for example, the women that drive in Formula W or W Series um, reach Formula One, for example? I don't know. I think you ask, let's talk about W Series. I worked in W Series for two years. Um, first of all i was quite skeptical but david coulthard invited me to be part of it so i did join it and i worked very hard in it and i'm very enthusiastic about it i think for whatever reason um and we can argue about the reason but i prefer not uh whatever reason women have not been numerous in most sports some people think it's because of uh because men have greater strength and greater speed and greater so on and so forth some people have that view uh, some people think it's a lack of opportunity all we know for a fact is that of the 900 drivers who have raced in formula one over the past 71 seasons those who have started races only two and i'm talking about world championship formula one grand prix mm -hmm. only two have been female and one was more than 40 years ago and the other was more than 60 years ago so it isn't getting better it appears to be getting worse so into that came w series to try to give a platform and an opportunity for 20 women to race every year and to race and to learn and i'm very proud of the time i spent there and i wish w series well and in fact w series has now been embraced as you know by Formula One, and it will race alongside Formula One at eight Grand Prix this coming year. Do I know if any of the drivers will race in Formula One? No, of course, nobody knows that. It can't be known. Um, some of the best drivers are already of a certain age. Let's talk about Emma Kimmelainen and Alice Powell. Uh, Emma Kimmelainen is over 30 and is a mother. Alice Powell is in her late 20s. They both won races last year. They, uh, sorry, the year before, the first year of W Series, yeah. 2019. But do I think that they're going to race in Formula One? Of course not. Any more than if a man of 31 was still in Formula Three. Of course he wouldn't race in Formula One. We all realize that's completely impossible because they are too old for where they are on the stepladder towards Formula One. Now, the youngest driver in W Series, I think, is Irina Sidorkova, who I think is 17. Um, she may be 18, but she's certainly 17 or 18. And then there's Marta Garcia from Spain, who won a race in 2019, and she might be 20 now, I think, perhaps. <clears throat> but Formula One now expects its drivers to arrive at a young age. Max Verstappen recalibrated that, mm -hmm. uh, arriving so young, as indeed did Lance Stroll uh, and others arriving in their teens to Formula One. So it is rather difficult. So perhaps one would say that uh, I very much hope that in the future, somebody will graduate from W Series on towards Formula One. Will it be one of the current drivers? It may well not. That. Matt, you are now starting a new challenge with uh, Cognizant Aston Martin F1 team. Uh, 
it will be a very interesting year because it's the return of Aston Martin to Formula One. Uh, it's also working with a very ambitious and demanding uh, boss in Lawrence Stroll, who can, who has a passion for the sport, but also has goals that he wants to reach, and namely bringing Aston Martin to the front and uh, challenge for wins in the near future. Uh, how excited are you with this project, and uh, how far do you think you guys can go? I think it's a fantastic project. I wouldn't have joined it if I didn't think that. I think Lawrence Stroll is magnificently ambitious. He's um, very, very successful. As Eddie Jordan said recently in an interview, everything he touches turns to gold. Uh, we have the name of Aston Martin above the door, one of the greatest names in the history of um, not only motorsport, but also motor cars. And yes, I, I think we now have because of that because of uh lawrence's arrival and because of the aston martin name we now have been able to attract sponsors uh cognizant sentinel one peroni and many others netapp and crypto.com um all of whom are bringing not only money and they are bringing money uh, but also expertise that uh, will help to make our operation better and ultimately therefore our car go faster and all of that is an exciting cocktail from which one would hope that the all very solid base where this team has won a race last year as Racing Point and has finished on the podium and scored points um, consistently will gradually be able to make that further step towards ultimate success. I'm not saying when. It's very difficult to beat yeah. Mercedes. It's very difficult to beat Red Bull. Um, and we don't underestimate any of our other rivals, Ferrari, McLaren, Renault, sorry, uh, Alpine, and so on and so forth. So, but I think that all the ingredients are now there to make this a possibility. Well, Matt, before we go, uh, and we let you go to enjoy the rest of your weekend, uh, we would like to talk a bit about uh, a child of labor that and of love that you wrote in your sabbatical year in 2018. It was in 2018. The Boy Made the Difference, uh, which is available for sale in Amazon, and all proceeds go to charity, which is the Bernardine Bishop Appeal, which is a tribute to your mother as well. Uh, and this is part of the Click Sergeant, a charity that helps children, young people, and their families who are suffering the effects of cancer. There is a very good review in gaytimes.co.uk which I will put the link into the episode um, of the podcast so that people can go and visit and also in our website. Uh, tell us a bit more about this book and uh, how much of it is personal to you? Uh, because the story is about a period of your life that I'm sure it wasn't easy for you being gay and society was very different from what it is now. And thankfully, now we evolved to something better. We're still not there, but we're getting closer. Tell us a bit more about this book. Well, listen, thank you very much for giving, the, giving me the opportunity to say, yes, look, I wrote it in between working for McLaren and working for W Series. So I began it in the summer of 2017 and I finished it in the first of 2018. And my mother was a novelist, my grandmother various others in my family. So I always thought perhaps there was a novel that I might want to write. I didn't know if I could write it. 
I didn't know if I would have the time or the talent. And but I'd written a lot of journalism, so I knew that perhaps I could turn a phrase. But writing a novel of 82,000 words is very different from writing up a Mika Hakkinen interview of 1,000 <laughs> Very, very different. And I sat down and began to write it. And what I wanted to do was the following. I wanted to do something in honour of my mother, so I wanted, I'd set up the Bernadine Bishop Appeal, which, as you say, fundraises for Clip Sargent, which is a wonderful charity which helps children with cancer. And I don't think, I haven't got children. I will never have children. But um, for me, there can be nothing worse for a parent, I can imagine, or maybe I can't imagine, but I can just begin to imagine than being told that your son or daughter has cancer, a little boy or a little girl. And charity that helps you with that um, appalling challenge uh, has to be worth supporting. So, um, and I've been supporting it for many years in different ways. Uh, so the Bernadine Bishop Appeal fundraises for Click Sergeant. So I knew whatever money I would make from it would go to Click Sergeant. That was the first thing. Second mm -hmm. thing is that 30 years ago, um, life for gay men was very difficult um, because of the arrival of HIV AIDS. So young men were dying. Um, dying in a terrible way, not only a physically terrible way, a very painful and uh, and um, unpleasant way to be dying in your 20s, often, or late teens, or 30s, or 40s, but often very young. But also, because 30 years ago, LGBTQ people were not accepted in the Western world quite as they are now, sometimes dying alone, despised and rejected by friends and even family. Just imagine that for a second. Just imagine being 20 years old and having embarking on your life at university with your friends, embarking, yes, on your sex life as well as a gay man, loved by your mother and father and loving your mother and father and your brothers and sisters and your straight friends and beginning to navigate your path through your life and then finding that you have a fatal disease which will kill you in an unspeakably unpleasant way and that actually all your loved ones reject you and allow you to suffer that death alone. I think that's a very hard thing for a young person to put up with. And there was a company or an organization called London Lighthouse, which at that time was the largest HIV AIDS center in the world, obviously based in London because London Lighthouse. And I volunteered for it. I was already working um, for Car Magazine as a, as, a, as a car journalist, but I volunteered as a home support volunteer um, or buddy, uh, which is where you befriend and support and assist someone who has had the experience that I have just described. Someone whose family has rejected them and they are suffering a fatal disease. And you look after them, you visit them. Um, you might do, you're not a doctor, you're not a counselor. They will have doctors, they will have counselors, but you might do anything from going round to their house and they say, 
I'm too tired. I'm too ill. Will you make me a cup of tea? Will you uh, clean the flat? Will you open my mail and answer some of those letters, pay those bills, write a check, I'll sign it? Any of the things that somebody who is terminally ill might not have the energy to do. Or they might say, there is a new movie I would like to go to. I don't dare to go on my own because I have uh, Carposi sarcoma. I have marks on my face and it reveals me as someone suffering from AIDS. So I will be bullied. But would you mind walking with me? I still, I think, have the strength to walk. Would you walk with me to the local cinema and then just protect me if somebody uh, taunts me in that way? And so I would go down with someone. If somebody, which they would, they would say, they would taunt the person for their um, for their visible signs of AIDS. And I would say, will you leave this poor man alone to go to the cinema now with me? Please leave us. Please walk away from us. We want to watch the cinema the same as you. You cannot catch this disease by sitting in the same auditorium. But please go away. Let's enjoy ourselves. And that was something that I suppose sometimes took some courage. But I have always had a zero tolerance policy to homophobia and I was able to deploy that zero tolerance policy in a positive way in that sense and I went to a lot of funerals and then of course in 1995-1996 wonderful invention of antiretroviral meds which meant that AIDS instead of being a death sentence that would kill you between two, three or four years of diagnosis would become, HIV would just become a condition that you can live with for years and years and years. So that for instance, now, if someone becomes HIV positive, age 30, they can look forward to living till 90, the same as all the rest of us. Mm -hmm. And that was a wonderful thing. But prior to the invention of antiretroviral meds, there was, a lot of literature, particularly in the UK and America, United States of America, about HIV and AIDS. And I found it very stirring and inspirational literature. And then when the situation changed, and thank goodness it did change because of the invention of antiretroviral meds, the, those novels stopped being written. And I always looked forward to reading another, but they, the years went past and nobody wrote one. So I decided if I wanted to read one, I would have to write one myself. So I did. <clears throat> it is not autobiographical. None of the characters are based on me or indeed on anyone I know. But of course, it draws on my experiences and it draws on my knowledge and it draws on my expertise from that time. And I dedicated it uh, to the boys of the Lighthouse and the Broderick. The Lighthouse being London Lights, the organization that I worked for and helped so many young men in those very, very difficult last stages of their young life. And the Broderick, which is the specialist HIV AIDS ward of the Middlesex Hospital in central London that was set up at the time um, and which I visited very many times and which no longer exists in a sense, thank goodness, because it no longer exists because there isn't a need for it to exist. So I'm sorry my answer is quite long, but that is... No. 
I'm very thankful for that. And uh, I think I already bought the book, by the way, just to a disclaimer. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. I'm looking forward to reading it uh, because I know how you write and how well it uh, it resonates uh, from your Formula One work. And I'm looking forward to reading your novel now. And I also would like to thank you for allowing us to travel on someone else's shoes to understand better what people have to overcome. Because it's, we don't know, right? We don't have to travel that journey. And understanding is key to embrace people and to support and help them. So thank you for this. Thank you for opening the doors for other uh, members of the LGBTQ plus community to enter mortal sport, but life in general as well with their heads held high and uh, less scared of being who they are and how others perceive them, but more uh, strengthened to enjoy life and pursue their dreams and ambitions, both on the professional, but most importantly, on the personal side. Matt, I would like to thank you for taking the time to be with us on the podcast. We wish you... We wish you a very successful career at uh, Aston Martin, and we hope uh, that uh, it will be a successful venture for all of you, and we'll be following it uh, every weekend uh, of the season. And um, thank you, Antonio, Vasco, and Marcelo, for joining me in this conversation with Matt. And uh, hopefully thank we'll you. be back thank you, Matt. soon. Thank you all. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully we'll be back soon with more uh, uh, real stories from Formula One and... Uh, how those stories can inspire us all to live our lives. Thank you. Have a good uh, day or evening, wherever you are, and see you next time.